Well, today was supposed to be another sermon in the book of Genesis, but that changed this week. To be honest, this is a, a Sunday that I, I wasn't looking forward to. Usually I, I am. Not this week. I wish it could have been skipped over, forgotten, but we are a family that God has called to himself in order to bring him glory. And also a family that's here to lift each other up. I received a message uh, Friday from someone in our church that I love and respect. In fact, it's someone that I, I often go to for encouragement. And this person is brutally honest, and, and they said to me this. I say I believe that God is sovereign, but I'm so disappointed with him. I'm not going to lie. I don't like what God has allowed to happen. I don't. I know in my head that God is in control and knowing everything that happens is part of his plan, but my heart hates this now. And I can say this pastorally to you as a church, today is not a day to put masks on. Not physical masks, but spiritual masks. Today is not a day to put on spiritual airs and pretend that we have it all together because we don't. Another person in our church sent me a text and a long text, and in, in, in it, the one thing that I remember, he said, it's okay not to be okay. So my hope this morning is that looking through this story in John 11 with Lazarus, we will see something that will fill our tanks today because we desperately need it. We're empty. We need hope and comfort. We need answers. We need the, the gentle arms of Jesus to surround us right now. 48 hours is not enough time to grieve. I'm still in shock, running through just about every emotion, uh, the whole stages of grief, the, the anger, uh, uh, the sadness, the, 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 the feeling that things are just not real, that someday we're going to wake up and this will all be just some, some dream. You don't need permission from me, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. You are allowed to ask questions. You are allowed to be angry. You are allowed to be upset. You are allowed to go through all of those emotions that are natural to us. In Psalm chapter 10, we read this. The psalmist says, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourselves, yourself in times of trouble? I'm supposed to have a spiritual answer. I've asked this question. This is what I, I feel like right now. Uh, why, oh God, are you so far away? Why, why, God, why did this happen? This doesn't feel right, and I wish I had the answers. Someone once said that life is, is kind of like a parade route. So when we go to a parade, we, we find a place on a street and we stand there or we sit there and we wait for the parade to come. But what often happens, especially in bigger cities, is that parades don't go straight. They make turns. They, they, they go throughout the different city streets. And so all that we see in the parade is what we see right in front of us. We see when the parade turns the corner, we see it in front of us. And when we see it turn another corner, we see nothing else. And this person said that life is like that, that we only see a small sliver of the world. We only see a small sliver of what exists. Spiritually speaking, we don't see everything that God does. 
We see what we see in our life, and maybe in, in certain moments we can understand things, but we don't see the full picture, and we never will until we see Christ. All we see is our section. We're limited to what we can see right now, and right now, nothing makes sense. Our faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And that's the only way that we can begin to start to make sense of this. This is the, the faith that the psalmists had. When you start digging through, and, and I've done this the last few days, digging through the songs of lament, the sad psalms, you start to see a pattern emerge. You start to see uh, the, the writer upset or angry or hurt. And then as the psalm goes, they start to, to talk about the goodness of God and how God will still achieve victory and, and, and how God is going to get the enemies and, and, and destroy those haters of God. Where are you, God? God wins. Where are you right now, God? We're on our little parade route. And while it may seem like sometimes God has, has, has turned his back on us or he has forgotten us, no. God is still victorious. God is still achieves the victory. Psalm 147 says that God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Spiritually speaking, we are wounded people. And we are seeking to be taken care of, our, our wounds to be healed and bound. As Mickey said earlier, Jesus says this, Come to me all who are heavy, or labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I want to remind you of this because this factors into how we view uh, all of these situations, Jesus is our rest and our comforter. And the passage that Ron just read reminds us of this, that we can always come to him and he will always do what's right for us. Now, what's right for us may not be what we want right now. And we see this in, in this passage in uh, John 11, verse 4. Jesus says something strange. It's something that, that, that sounds strange to someone who has just uh, gone through a tragedy. Lazarus is sick, and, and Jesus calmly says, well, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Hmm. Only one problem. We know by reading this story in just a few verses that Lazarus dies. Jesus, how can you say this when, when, when he is going to die? We, we know that. Jesus knows that sickness is fatal, but that it won't be the end of Lazarus. And Jesus knows what he's going to do in just a few days. He is going to raise Lazarus back from the dead. Why? So that God will be glorified through it. Why does anything happen so that God may be glorified? One of the most important things that we can do is, as Christians, as followers of Christ, is to understand who God is, to study who God is and what he does before tragedy happens. 
before we start looking for answers because in the middle of tragedy, we don't think correctly. And so to start trying to work through how God operates in the middle of a tragedy, it's not going to happen. It's not going to work. We study who God is before so that when tragedy does happen, we can apply his word to our lives. And seeing the glory of God as Jesus talked about played out in his sovereignty is one of the most important things that any of us can ever do. Sovereignty is a fancy word saying that God is in control. And in this case, it means that God has control over everything, including, including how each and every one of us will die. We've experienced great loss on so many levels this week. More than anything, I mean, I, I lost an employee. I lost, the, personally speaking, the leader of our kids' ministry that probably, maybe even possibly more influential in my kids' life than me. Which, by the way, my kids never uh, forgot to remind me of that, how much that they love Josh. More than that, though, I lost a buddy. And I know other people have known him for, for far longer than I have. But, but, but all of these different losses that I'm trying to process and trying to work through, the, the hall, the what-ifs, and the whys, they haven't stopped. The writer of Ecclesiastes says this, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Listen. When we see what happened, we all examine our own lives. We all get a chance to say, well, what about me? What happens? What happens if I were to die? And what happens in, for eternity? What, what am I going to say to God? We begin to take things more seriously. It's not fun, but God says that it's better for us than to, to live a life of perpetual happiness. And we'll see that unfold in, in a few minutes. There are two reasons why I love this passage so much, especially now. First, I love that it speaks of resurrection. Resurrection from the dead is the story of every Christian, and Lazarus gives us just a, a glimpse of what will happen to every person who puts their faith and trust in Christ. But the second thing is this passage gives us a dose of reality. We can't escape this. Death happens to us all. Some here will, will have illnesses that cripple us and, and, and others physical or mental. Our bodies will, will at one point fade away and fall apart and, and we'll be unable to live the life that we want. And if you understand if you understand God's control well before that happens, you'll see the purpose for the suffering. Some people may be saying, well, Ryan, you, you've never experienced what I've experienced. You're exactly right. right. You, you don't know what it's like to get uh, the, the, the message from the doctor. You don't know what it is to read those test results. You don't understand, and you're right, I don't understand. But what I do understand is that we worship a God who is stronger than death. Who has promised that he has already defeated it. We, we, we worship a God who one day says that we will never again suffer loss and shame and sin 
and suffering, that one day those will be gone. How do I know him? The Bible has promised that those who trust in Christ and turn from their sin will be given a new heart, will be made new, and will be given a hope and a trust in Christ that a future awaits them. Mourning is part of the human story. We, we struggle. The one thing that's guaranteed to all of us, we still don't know how to deal with. But we mourn not as the world. We don't mourn like people who don't know Christ. Yes, we are sad. Yes, we mourn. Yes, we cry. Yes, we get angry. Yes, we are mad. Yes, we can't deal with those losses. But our hope is in the Savior. Our hope is in the one who has promised to defeat all of that. Our hope is in the one who gives us hope. He's the only way that we can get through. We're not residents. We're not uh, uh, citizens of this world. We are, are citizens of heaven, the kingdom of God. And now, don't miss this, though. The one who created the universe is certainly strong enough to heal. And we've prayed and prayed, didn't we? And so some would say, well, God did not answer our prayers. Yes, he did. Whenever we go through a tragedy, we pray and we pray and sometimes we see the outcome of that in our favor and other times we don't. But often God chooses not to. For the Christian, we tend to go to one of two extremes. We, 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 we either accept this and, and embrace it or we fight against it. How could a loving God do this is a question that I get often. I've talked to parents who have their little children and the parents have lost their child. How could God do this? If God were so loving, why didn't he stop this? Why didn't he save my child? Here, how could God take away literally the one person that I've ever met that has no enemies? The one person in my life that has never had a negative thing to say. Why? Here is where getting our understanding of God in order is so important. God wants us to put our entire trust in him, believing that whatever happens, happens because it's part of God's will and his plan, even the bad stuff. And so you say, well, how is this part of God's plan? Think about the greatest injustice the world has ever seen. God in the flesh being scorned and beaten, rejected, spat upon, left to die, hanging on an instrument of torture. How is this part of God's plan? Well, we are so grateful that it was. If we understand this, that even bad things that happen in our lives, uh, God is not silent. God has not turned his, turned his back on you. God has not forgotten about you. God uses bad situations all the time for his purposes. 
We should praise God that God can take something evil and sinful and bad and he can make it good for his glory. He's done that with us. He's taken sinners, people who've rejected him, and he's made us into creatures of worship. He's given us the ability to see God for who he is, that the loving and merciful cre- uh, creator that he is. And this is what he does with his creation as well. And we see that at the end of Revelation, the story of God's creation returns back to the way that it was at the beginning. John Piper is a respected pastor and theologian, one of the the greatest preachers of our time. And in 2000, he spoke at a a festival with a bunch of young adults. And in his sermon, it was primarily to to 18 to 30 year olds. And in this sermon, he spoke of a couple that he, he read in a newspaper article um, who this couple retired very young from the Northeast and they, they moved to uh, the Gulf Coast to live out the rest of their days. And Piper wrote, or Piper read that in this article, uh, this couple did, um, they talked about what they enjoyed doing and there were three things they listed, um, riding on their boat, playing softball and collecting shells. And he encouraged these young people to not buy into this idea of the American dream. That you work 40 years or 30 years or 20 years if you're really good, quit, and then move to Florida and that's it for the rest of your life and you just walk on the beach every day. That's not the goal of the Christian life. There is no retirement for believers. And Piper says this, Piper said, if those people were to stand before God, what are they going to give to the Lord? Here God, here's my seashell collection. His purpose of his message was don't waste your life. It was to give up on everything that the world says that's important and cling to the Savior. It wasn't that long after that that John Piper had cancer. And so he wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Cancer. It's a strange title, but it's true. And listen to what he wrote in this book. He says, Christians are never anywhere by divine accident. They are, uh, there are reasons for why we wind up where we do. Consider what Jesus said about painful, unplanned circumstances. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Piper continues, so it is with cancer. There will be an opportunity to bear witness. Christ is infinitely worthy Here is a golden opportunity to show that he is worth more than life. Don't waste it. Have you thought about your pain, your suffering, your death in this way? Have you thought that maybe your situation was given to you so that you could stand boldly before the Father and say, I put my trust in you even more than I did yesterday? Maybe the suffering that we endure has been given to us so that we can bless others and show others the bright light of Jesus Christ in their midst of their suffering. Do you know what John Piper proclaims God's glory the most? Moments before he went in for surgery, his words, he shouted, God is enough. How do we handle suffering and sorrow? These are good questions. 
And this is no mere side note to the text, but in our passage today, Lazarus was dead, and Jesus seemed to have done nothing. If you just read a couple of these verses, it's strange. We have God in the flesh. God can do anything. They tell Jesus that Lazarus is dead, and he does nothing. He can snap his fingers. He can blink an eye, however he did it, and he can make Lazarus rise from the dead immediately. And he chooses not to. He lets Lazarus get sick and die. Jesus says what he does in verse 4, even though he knew about Lazarus that he would be dead soon because he knows what he's about to do. The Bible makes it clear that Jesus knew their hearts and he knew the future. He's fully man and fully God. He knew that he would soon be unjustly tried and convicted before a council of hypocrites. He knew that he would be beaten and tortured so much that his face was mangled beyond recognition. Didn't even look like a man. He knew that he would have nails driven through his hands and through his feet. And he knew this was coming because he is God. Jesus wasn't preaching and teaching and walking around thinking, well, I hope I accomplish what I aim to do today. That would be the definition of impotence, unable to secure victory because he would have been limited by his humanity. A Jesus who is not God is a Jesus who cannot save anyone. But what about Lazarus? The response Jesus gives in verses 5 and 6 is a strange way to show people how much he loves them. Listen to these words. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he had heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. He didn't rush to Lazarus. He stayed longer. He stayed where he was two days longer than he had planned. But these people decided to serve Jesus, Mary and Martha. John writes that he loved, Jesus loved the two women and their brother. This is not a passing fancy. This is a love that you have for your closest friends. Uh, this is not love for food or for sports. This is love that goes far deeper. So how can Jesus love these people and not seek to do two things? First, to heal Lazarus, and then at the very least, not rush to their side to give them comfort. Jesus didn't have cars or helicopters. He was miles away. Traveling sometimes took days over mountains and through deserts. And If Jesus would have left by the time he got there, Lazarus would have been dead anyway. And even if Jesus wanted to heal Lazarus before he died, the timing would not have worked. So Jesus knew that Lazarus was already dead before he got there. Jesus was not going to be manipulated by crowds or even by his own followers. He knew what he was doing as he is fully God. And so his aim was to always do the will of the Father. Now something else to think about here is that Jesus wanted to give enough time between the death of Lazarus and when he brought him back to life so that people would not be confused at what happened. That it was no mere resuscitation. I've read this, that, that Jesus had some way to resuscitate him. Not after four days. Not after being that long in the grave. See, you could see people then, if Jesus had snapped his fingers and, and healed Lazarus, people would have said, well, all he did was give him medicine or, or some natural causes helped him out. 
give them some essential oils or whatever else that people do now to try to fix things. But the miracle that Jesus performed was, in fact, a miracle. If Jesus would have rushed to Lazarus, he would have diminished the dramatic power that everyone saw as the man in burial cloths comes walking out. So the illness and death of Lazarus is a wonderful example of love because it put the glory of God on display for everyone to see. Jesus could have stepped in miles away, but... Oh, the glory of God was shine brightest when a man who everyone knew was not coming back came back. But the love of Jesus let him die because the death of Lazarus would help people to see the glory of God. To see that this is the Messiah who was from God and who is God. This is why Jesus waited. This is why it took him days to come and to tell Lazarus to come out of the grave. But even in the joyful celebration that Jesus brought him back, the fact remains that Lazarus died a second time. We don't see this in Scripture. We, we don't know when, we don't know how, but at some point, because he's not alive now, Lazarus died Jesus said in verse 14 that Lazarus died, and we know that it happened again. This is where we are. We are exactly like Lazarus, just a man, just a person. It's not something we think about. We don't like to think about it. This is why the, the writer of Ecclesiastes says that it's better to come to a house of mourning when you're sad because you take the eternal things to heart. We don't think about these things when we're celebrating. We don't think about these things at parties. Our future. It's frightening. But for the Christian, death is the next inevitable step toward our eternity. This is our mission, though, while we're here to tell everyone we can about the glory of God. So we don't go jump off a bridge. God has given us a task. This passage then moves to detailing how Jesus interacts with people who question him. He has three interactions. To them, as it does to us, what Jesus did certainly didn't seem like love. Uh, the first one of these that he interacts, though, is with Martha. Look at verses 20 and 21. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She does something that many of us do when we feel like God is not listening to us. She questions. But notice she doesn't give up on Jesus. She doesn't give up on what God has said. Most people in this situation, if they knew that Jesus had the power to revive their lost loved one, would say something like this, okay, Jesus, I've given you much of my time. I've given you my money and my life, and you don't even make an attempt to save my brother. I'm done with this. That's what we'd say, most of us. But Martha doesn't do this. She says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Her faith was tested, and it was strong. She didn't waver in her faith that Jesus was who he claimed to be. She didn't understand it. She didn't like it. 
but she believed. Martha says this, Jesus, I know that Lazarus will be raised on the last day. So her mind's already thinking like what we think, right? That, that, that we, they will be raised, that they will one day be with you. The last few weeks we knew this would take a miracle and that the odds were stacked against us, but man, we prayed. We prayed and we prayed and we prayed. We prayed for physical healing, and, and can I say this, and, and we say this as Christians, and I do not mean to be trite, I do not mean to buy into the cliche, but I, what else can I tell you? That our brother is no longer suffering. COVID-19 did not win. The powers and the principalities of this world did not win. Jesus did. And if there were sorrow in heaven, Josh would be feeling it for us right now. He gets to see Jesus. He gets to be wrapped in the arms of the Savior. This is what victory is. It's not, it's not a loss. It's not a defeat. And so all of this is happening to Mary and Martha. And then Jesus responds with something so profound. He says this, you are right to believe that there will be a day when all this happens, but I'm here to tell you that the day has arrived. I am the Messiah. I am God in flesh. I'm here. And you can picture the look on people's faces. Astonishment. See, people back then were still trying to figure out exactly who Jesus was. Yes, we know that he's a prophet. Yes, we know he's special. He's done miracles in front of us. But it took some time for them to work through. Even the disciples struggled with the fact that Jesus is God. Still working through this. We've got 2,000 years in the completed Bible that helps us to understand this. Jesus was telling them, yes, Lazarus is gone. Yes, he's dead, but you're not. Everyone who can hear me is still living. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. If someone just picked up this passage and just read it, they think we're crazy. What do you mean, never die? What, what does that even mean? How can that be? We know that the human body can only live for a certain period of time and then it's over. What does that even mean? Well, Jesus wasn't talking about flesh and bone and blood. That's not his purpose. There are people who make that their purpose, but that's not what Jesus was talking about. He was speaking spiritually. Every person has a soul. We're all created in the image of God. No other creature has this, and it's why we are so special. We are the gems of God's creation. Jesus did not, uh, Jesus did not come to die for trees. He came to die for us so that we could be made right with God, so that not only would we, would we be created in the image of God, we would be recreated in the likeness of Christ. And even though our bodies will die, our souls are eternal. And the same thing that Jesus says to Martha, he says to you today. You haven't met Jesus face to face like Martha, but you have a benefit that she didn't have. We have the completed word of God. She had Jesus. We have the whole story of what God has done. But even though Martha could reach out and touch Jesus' face, we must answer the same question that Jesus asked of her. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So this is a question I ask of you today. Do you believe this? 
the million-dollar question that you and I have to answer, and our answer determines our eternity. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, or is he something else? As Christians, we believe that this is only our faith given by God's grace that we can be saved and never die. Our bodies will die, but our souls live forever. And if we believe in him, our forever will be spent in worship because of what Jesus did for us. So he had one encounter with Martha, and now Jesus moves to an encounter with Mary. Look at verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's as if Mary's crying, where were you, Jesus, when we needed you? Just human emotion coming out. This woman had just lost her brother, and the one person that could have not only saved him, but made him right, and not only that, the one person who could give her comfort didn't seem to really, to her, care. We know he cared. But in her moment of grief, she didn't see it. The suspicions and the doubts of the people Around Jesus at this moment, people in the community, it brings Jesus to weep. It shakes him visibly. In verse 33, it says that Jesus was deeply moved and troubled. And in verse 35, it says that he wept. Jesus was upset. He was bothered by the disbelief on the part of the people who followed him and by the people who had just seen him perform miracle after miracle. And even though he's fully God, his humanity was showing here. This is not in the Bible, but you wonder if he, in his frustration, would have said or thought or something similar to, guys, I've done everything for you. I've done miracles. I've done all of these things. What more do you want from me? What more do I need to do to prove to you who I am? Haven't I given you enough to believe in me? Well, then finally, Jesus interacts with the others, the friends in the town. Verse 36 and 37, it says, So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? Doubt. As a pastor, I've sat across the table from many, many people who In times of tragedy, their faith is shattered. Well, if God loved me, he wouldn't let this happen to me. If Jesus did what he promises, then this would not have happened. Three times in this story, Jesus faces people who struggle to trust him. They've seen the work that he's done, and they can't get beyond this reality the question, the, 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 they question the one who has over and over proven himself. And I don't think it was just that they wouldn't believe in him. I think it goes deeper than that. I think it goes right back to the point of the entirety of this chapter. They don't trust Jesus because they can't see how much he loves them. They don't see it. They don't trust Jesus because they, they can't see this. His love is being questioned. But even though he's being questioned, he still acts, regardless of the unbelief. In verse 39, Jesus says this, take away the stone. 
People would be buried in a hillside or, or in a burial mound, and they would put the stone that would roll in front of the, 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 the grave. And Martha says what we'd all think. He's been buried for days. How is this going to end well? And they put the stone up so that the vultures wouldn't come in and, and desecrate the body. They put the stone there also to protect people walking by, to not have to smell what happens to bodies when they're not preserved. But Jesus lifts his eyes and he cries, Lazarus, come out. This is better than any movie, isn't it? When he says that, you can imagine silence. No one coughing, no one even blinking. They're looking directly at Jesus and then they turn towards the grave. What's going to happen now? And if this were a movie, you'd start to feel the, 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 the music, the tension that comes from the music, and it would swell, and, and then all of a sudden, silence. Out comes Lazarus. Still wrapped, still covered in burial cloth, and he comes walking out. The love of God on full display. Yeah, you question my love, now see what I'm about to do here. Let me show you how much I love Lazarus. Let me show you how much I love Mary and Martha. Lazarus, come out. And he did. And we usually stop this story right there. This great story that we read about when we're in, as kids all the way up through adulthood, uh, the story of Jesus and Lazarus, and it, it gives us encouragement. But I think we don't go for, far enough. Because this is not the only time that Lazarus will die. Just like him, we will all die one day. But just like Lazarus, Jesus can call out to us and say, come out. Have you ever thought about the parallels between yourself and with Lazarus? Where Lazarus' body was buried in a grave, we are consumers of what the world has to offer. We are buried with the sin of the world. And what does Jesus say to us? Come out. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Lazarus, I will give you rest. Do you see that this is not an accidental insertion into Scripture? This is not a chance meeting do you see how this points to something far greater that Jesus will do for his people? See, those who are in Christ have a, have a greater story. We are Lazarus. We were once dead in our sin and now we've been raised up and given new life. If you're not a Christian, maybe you've attended church, maybe you've read a little bit of the Bible, but you're, you're, you're not devoted to Christ, and you hear about people raising, Jesus raising people from the dead, it sounds strange, and I agree, it does. None of us have the power to do this. But Lazarus was dead, and Jesus made him alive. Jesus breathed life back into his lungs, made his heart to start beating again, and his brain waves to start clicking again. 
and he was alive. It's important to know that you and I are just like Lazarus. And we have no hope. We will be remaining in the grave if we do not have Christ. Well, if you know the story of Jesus, um, you know that not long after this, he will die himself. He will soon be hung on a cross and killed. And it's ironic to think that as Jesus seeks out his dead friend to give him life, the Jewish leaders are seeking to have Jesus killed. Imagine the acclaim after this all happens that Jesus was given after bringing Lazarus back to life. That's why in verse 4, Jesus said that all, it, all of this has happened so that God will be glorified. See, even illness and death, either God gives it or God allows it. But either way, God is still in control. And he's still stronger than both of those things. Jesus giving Lazarus a second chance on life is only a shadow, it's a picture of what God does whenever a sinner repents and trusts in Christ in faith. See, the Bible paints a, a, a picture of, of sin being spiritual deadness. We're not alive until God breathes life back into our lungs by his grace. This is, why, this is why we sing and we proclaim and why we're encouraged when we talk about how much Jesus loves us. He loves us so much that while we were rebels against him, he saved us from the grave. We don't have to worry. Because Jesus has already defeated those things that scare us. Jesus has defeated death. We may live difficult lives of affliction and it may never leave, but our hope does not lie in our circumstances or our situations. Our hope is in the one who himself defeated death and sin and the grave and three days later rose again after being buried. We worship the creator of life. Our hope is in the one who created everything and holds it in his hands. So in closing, where is your hope? When we face tragedy, we either abandon hope or we cling even tighter. Have you noticed that tragedy does not allow for moderation? Which one are you? Are you clinging to hope even more? Or are you running away? We have to ask ourselves, are we seeing the glory of God in this tragedy? Are we seeing God's glory in our suffering and in our sorrow? It's my plea to you today. Don't waste or ignore this suffering. You have it for a purpose. Look to the one who has given you life and life everlasting. Seek to glorify him even when it seems impossible. God will give you strength and endurance because he's given you life. God has raised you, Christian, from the dead, just like Lazarus. This is our hope. This is what we cling to. Would you pray with me?